Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Martin Luther said, If an injury that really hurts is to be done to the devil, it must be inflicted through the young people who are reared in the knowledge of God, spread God's word, and teach it to others. Martin Luther did not know our Wittenberg Academy scholars, but if he did, he would certainly agree that they put the devil in a world of hurt. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is a doctor of culture? What does a doctor of culture do? Today I am joined by several Wittenberg Academy scholars to answer these questions. These exemplary young people are doctors of culture. They spent the last 12, 24, or 36 weeks under the tutelage of Dr. James Tolman, Wittenberg Academy's rhetoric teacher. And that time has taken them from well-catechized, intelligent young people to doctors of culture. In the first half of our time together, we are going to hear briefly from these scholars about the writings from their rhetorical studies which had the most impact on them and why they chose their particular topic for their original oratory. In the second half, we are going to hear their original oratories from the 2020 Celebration of Oratory. Sit back and enjoy these doctors of culture diagnose ills and suggest cures for what ails our culture. What readings during your rhetorical studies had the greatest impact on you and why? Sergio, if you want to go ahead and weigh in on that first, that would be great. You have a provocative question. Many might consider my answer basic, but a lot is going on behind the short answer. My short answer is of rhetoric and redemption in La Rioja by Dr. Jim Tolman. And as many know, Dr. Thomas is the rhetoric teacher for Wittenberg Academy. But let me explain why this was the reading that had the greatest impact on me. The book plot presents Paul receiving a 30-day permission from house arrest in Rome to attend business in Spain. He must consent to come back to finish his sentencing. He plans a mission in the Hispanic area and the plan takes a turn when Paul meets Quintilian. They spend time together talking about rhetorical theory, ethics, pedagogy, Christianity, and Paul's latest manuscript, namely Hebrews. What you learn from this book is fantastic. The way the philosophy, theology, and rhetoric is presented is making you want to read more and more. In fact, I remember taking the book in my hand and finding myself taking a break about 100 page later. Paul is an excellent rhetorician, and the book shows this. Analyzing the scripture and Dr. Talman's book, we can really see different styles that Paul is writing, but that reflects how good of a rhetorician he is. The letters to Roman, for example, was more of a syllogistic letter, but the one to Hebrews is based more on, as uh, Dr. Talman would say, force, subsly, and stylistic elegance. This because the Jews are more are moved by rituals and figuration, by allegory and symbolism. He approaches the Jews with their own tradition. And if we don't want to believe the scriptures, the historical facts show us that their traditions are more attracting to them. We can find him using words at the beginning of successive clauses, which means anaphora, and this gives the letter a unique way of addressing. Rhetoric is an art, and this art is hard to handle, especially today, where everybody gives speeches. But I would say that a few understand how rhetoric works and do a good job out of it. For this reason, we must train and prepare to be rhetoricians, and that's not an easy task. Dr. Talman presents very clearly many concepts to help anyone understand better the art of rhetoric. And I believe that the book has a big impact on everyone who reads it. 
Fantastic. Joanna, same question for you. What reading or readings during your rhetorical studies had the greatest impact on you and why? One of the first readings that comes to my mind is The Rhetorical Situation by Lloyd Pfister. This was one of the first pieces that we read, and I think it really set the tone for the remainder of our studies. Great orators speak to people according to the situations they face. This reading helps me realize how important it is to speak according to particular circumstances. You know, context is important. We need to know how to appropriately respond to different situations. And as bits are laid out, these situations depend on people involved, relationships to one another, and previous or future events. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Joanna. Okay, Anna. Well, one of the readings that I really enjoyed was the readings that Paul wrote in Galatians, Ephesians, and Hebrews. So Dr. Talman wanted us to read this to see how many rhetorical devices were in his writing. And as you read in the three chapters, there are so many. And it's so fascinating to read these and we pick these out and the meaning behind these, what they actually mean. So some of them are the anaphoras, which is the repetition in his readings and metaphors, which are the figures of speech and the antithesis where he has opposites of each other, like good and bad. But I think it's very interesting to pick these out, but also to apply this reading other chapters of the Bible or just another book in general. All right, Olivia. Well, I think there were so many that it's really hard to choose, but one that I always seem to come back to through Rhetoric 1, Rhetoric 2, and even Rhetoric 3 is The Cultural Role of Rhetoric by Richard M. Weaver. It shows the the true uses of rhetoric and dialectic together because we are a people that do not just think with our heads, which is using mainly dialectic, and we are not just a people that uses only our heart to feel emotion. We use both our head and our heart when being persuaded to do something and when thinking about a certain situation. And I think Weaver's cultural of rhetoric really just displays that and describes it all very well and very acutely so that it's easy to understand for anyone who doesn't understand what rhetoric truly is. So that's one of my favorites. And I think another one would probably be Quintilian's He, in his Institutes of Oratory, he just gives so many examples of figures of speech, both good and bad, and shows you how to use them and even how not to use them, I suppose. And both of these will definitely help me in future endeavors of rhetoric writing, I guess. And persuading people. This is the great thing about great writing. Even though he wrote not today, his writings are still so relevant and speak to our context today, even though he didn't write today. All right, Douglas. As my predecessors have aptly and repeatedly mentioned, the former portion of this question is quite simple to answer. I found the readings of George Campbell, and specifically in his book, The Philosophy of Rhetoric, to be greatly helpful in my rhetorical studies. As to why, however, this is a more difficult question to answer in an abbreviated amount of time. Campbell says essentially on, uh, I believe it's page 95 of his book, The Philosophy of Rhetoric, that the mind derives pleasure from discovering similarities. Now, this is something that when I hit upon this reading in Rhetoric 3, everything just seemed to click. In your speech and in your composition process, you must write as if you were being poetic, and this, this is a principle I tried to follow in sometimes when you're going through a dialectic process and when you add in certain uh, characters of uh, speech, such as the anaphora. It's also quite evident in music and other forms of art that uh, repetition is it's always present in, uh, in some form because every, nearly every song has a refrain. It's something that brings back something to the mind. The, the, the repetition also adds to memory. Why did you choose the topic that you chose. Sergio, I'll let you go first. It's interesting to have a little of background about me. I am looking forward into studying for ministry 
And one thing I'm really interested in are ethics. Sadly, today's society is attacked every every single second by the devil. And that reflects into teenagers who are now and who will come, namely future generations. What stops us from coming together and being a union that will be a voice trying to make a change into into society? I am deeply sad by what is happening with the generations today and the ones that will come. Nobody really cares anymore about Christianity or even ethics. But we, the few who still want to keep alive the Christianity, the confessionalism, the conservatorism, and the ethics in our daily lives, must stay straight, facing threats, and what seems to be more powerful people. And we must address publicly these problems. God is with us, and we have to trust him. And this is why I chose this topic. It is something that I want to work in the future, and I don't want to fear addressing it. Joanna, how did you arrive at your topic? Choosing a topic took a lot of thought. Rhetoricians are doctors of culture. They address a problem with our world and suggest a cure. I looked at society today and thought to myself, what's one thing I would change if I could? I saw many things. The one that I felt closest to was the state of education today. As I compared public schools to my own homeschool experience, the importance of classical Lutheran education came more into focus. As I mentioned in my speech, we need classical Lutheran education to hold society together using the bonds it knits within families, which are the building block of society. And this is a message you don't hear very often outside the Wittenberg Academy family which is why I chose to speak on this topic in my oration. Anna, how did you choose the topic you chose? I had a couple of ideas and the topic that I chose, I just felt most connected to, and then I thought I could really speak on and then further write on. I also really hope when I go to college is to work with children and help children, and so a lot of my papers have been on children. Olivia, how did you choose your topic? I just have seen not as much emphasis on the gifts of the musical arts or any of the fine arts for that matter. And so I just wanted to speak about how music especially is the pinnacle of the fine arts and how it is really a special gift. And I really love music and it it has really affected me in many ways. And that's basically why I wanted to speak on music. Douglas, how did you arrive at your topic? I chose to speak about the family as a result of learning to be a doctor of culture. And to briefly explain what that's what that means it's a doctor of culture is someone who diagnoses symptoms of degradation in society and prescribes a cure to the disease uh, the disease could mean leaders with poor judgment faulty ethical policies or even with a maleficent intent towards their society i looked at our society i saw it crumbling i took a step back and thought for a moment and all of the uh, studies of history that i've undergone have taught me that when the family degrades, the rest of the society simply just goes with it. So I look around the society which I live in and I see families splitting and I see not only the families breaking but the people breaking. Women are encouraged to be less feminine and men are encouraged to be less masculine by media and so forth and that's a topic that just really hits close to home because as a member of a family of nine now. I just feel incredibly blessed to have a family of this proportion and to have experienced it. I wanted to bring that out into the public square, so to speak. Having heard from these doctors of culture, let's go ahead and pick up with Dr. Tolman at the 2020 celebration of oratory. Joanna's speaking today on classical Lutheran education as an antidote to the ills of secularization. One thing you will notice, friends, in these speeches today, there's a lot of social critique. There's a lot of cultural critique. That's because we've been studying Richard Weaver recently about the cultural role of rhetoric. And part of that is to 
improve society by showing citizens better versions of themselves. And so that's really influenced, I think, the compositions that you're going to hear today. So I just thought it'd be interesting for you to hear a little background on how that came into being. Picture this. A man sits at the head of a table. His wife brings the last dish of mouth-watering food from the kitchen. His dog lies nearby, waiting for crumbs to fall from the table. The table is surrounded by his kids, eagerly awaiting their dinner. The family bows their heads in prayer, giving thanks to God for his generous blessings. Now, picture the house next door. None of the kids are at the table, but are instead watching TV, scrolling through social media, or partying out with their friends. Their mother is trying to cook dinner, but is overwhelmed with other things that need her immediate attention. Their stepfather has not been seen all day and likely won't be home for supper. Which house would you rather be invited to for dinner? Such is a picture of families today. What diverse images. When you look at the second family, ask yourself, what is their influence? By who or what are they held together? Now, let's go back to the first family. This family attends church together, reads God's word together, and prays together. They are held together by God and his word. This foundation was instituted when the father and the mother were united in holy matrimony before the children were born. They vowed to remain united to each other until death should part them. Marriage is like a tricycle. Christ is the front wheel. The back two wheels, the husband and the wife, are joined together and led by this front wheel. Their marriage is founded on Christ. Children, by God's grace, follow this union. Parents are called to raise their children in the Lord, that they might not stray from God and his word. God spoke to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 6, saying, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. The table of duties clearly states that fathers are to raise their children and that children are to obey their parents in the Lord. This structure has been practiced for generations upon generations since the Old Testament. Many of you are a part of this familial foundation, and I pray that the chain never ends. Back to secularized families, the second house I described for you. What holds them together? I see no common thread in their daily lives. They have no unity. The adults have committed sins against the sixth commandment. There is no consistent father figure to lead for and provide for the family. The children have not been raised to serve their family and help their parents around the house. I can tell you what influences live in this house, the pit of sin that society has become. It is hard to go out in public or watch a movie without internally or externally cringing from a sight we see or words we hear. The internet emphasizes relationships between friends instead of preaching the importance of loving your family. Our role models are now selfish celebrities instead of good Christian figures who lead godly lives. Citizens of all ages throw around profane language like they are snowballs instead of speaking well to their neighbors. I could go on listing several sources of these sins. Secularized families are corrupted by these ideals that are presented to them. Secularized families have strayed from God because society does not honor him with its words and actions. Secularized families have no firm foundation which holds them together. These issues aside, can society be a good thing? Certainly. We are called to love and serve our neighbors, which would be impossible without community and society. However, we must educate our children to recognize when society has fallen too far from God's word. We cannot solve problems of secularization because of our sinful natures, but we can educate our children to act smartly in society. Classical Lutheran education is founded in God's word. Scholars are prepared for life in this world by cultivating good mental habits taught in the liberal arts. 
they are also prepared for life after death by studying God's word, which delivers salvation through faith. Where in society are you taught about eternal life in Christ our Lord? This catechesis is crucial for salvation. This catechesis is the common confession of the family's faith. This catechesis structures the family and holds them together. Christian education is rooted in God's word, while society sometimes seems to be rooted in sin. Families are the building blocks of society. Without family, there would be no society. When families fall apart, society falls apart. When families thrive, society thrives. When families serve each other, society serves its members. When families panic, society panics. An unstructured society is the result of unstructured families. Look at our situation today. The world has been taken over by extreme terror surrounding the current pandemic. Our society lacks cultural cohesion. It is not grounded in Christ. This lack of unity leads to a society of fragments, which ultimately leads to panic. People today are full of desperation in matters surrounding politics, foreign affairs, equality, and now COVID-19. How do we knit society back together amidst this chaos? In order for society to survive, it must have a common grounding. This starts in our families. Through classical Lutheran education, we are unified in our confession of faith. This unity encourages society to come together amidst strife. Richard Weaver wrote that such centripetalism is the essence of culture's power to cohere and endure. For those of you who haven't studied physics, centripetalism is the force around which a body orbits. The body is held in its circular or elliptical orbit by this central force. What happens when the centripetalism fails? The bodies fall out of orbit, straying farther and farther from each other. Faith is the central force that holds families together. Their unity is grounded in common confession of God's word. So why am I lecturing you? No, it's not because this is another assignment due by midnight. I'm speaking to you because we all need to recognize the importance of being grounded in God's word. Classical Lutheran education teaches your kids how to live a Christian life in service to your neighbor and society. This knowledge will serve them past their high school careers as they one day establish a family of their own. Being grounded in Christ, they will not fall into the trap of becoming a secularized family. Classical Lutheran education unifies families in faith and by this unity supports our society with this stability. The structure of society depends on the structure of families. So encourage these scholars in their faith, pray for them often and teach them diligently. Sergio, why don't you share with us what you've come up with? The word will not be destroyed by those who do evil, but by those who watch and do nothing. I intend to do what little one community can do to awaken the public conscience. And in the meantime, we shall not be frightened by the threats. I ask for your help because I am sure that we all can have an impact. I am not addressing you as being part of the problem, but as you being people that can also address these problems publicly and try to change the society. The world is a dangerous place to live, not because of the evil people, but because of the people who don't do anything about it. Adolescence is interesting. All life is interesting and all life is trans transitionary. But I think that there is an exponential growth physically, intellectually, emotionally, and there is so much potential. If we fail to provide boys with pro-social models of the transition to adulthood, they may con construct their own, in some cases, gang initiation rituals 
street racing and random violence may be the result. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not, nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not, unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Persistence and determination alone are a powerful tool that will change the world. We can find thousands of excuses for not doing something because it is more comfortable for us to, to not have a headache. But what if the humans would take the responsibilities? What if we go there and work hard to achieve something instead of playing that game hour after hour? Let's get out of the comfort zone and be the change in the world. It will not be easy. In fact, we are warned that it will be hard but what will you accomplish sitting on the sofa and watching TV? Nothing. Imagine the fulfilling moment when you will be able to change something in others' life. Movies can and do have a great influence in shaping young lives in the area of entertainment towards the models and goals of normal adulthood. As much as we want to approve or not, movies have a significant influence on somebody's life. How many times did we watch a movie and after it is finished, we wondered why we lost two or three hours of our lives and looked at something that will not prove of any good for us or taught us some very bad jokes. It often happens because the movie industry it is not interested anymore in producing good movies that will show an example to humans. They are merely interested in putting together some things quickly and aim toward sales and revenue. I had the occasion to navigate on some present day cartoons, TV programs, and sadly, I was disappointed. There are no more cartoons, but soap operas that shows teenagers doing dumb things, unnecessary violence, and exposing even a little of nudity. Are we going to accept that? Are we going to let our children get indoctrinated by this progressivism presence in today's society? What values are they going to learn from watching a teenager acting rude to their parents, not obeying anyone, skipping classes, fighting, lying, and running from consequences. I don't want to sound too strict also. There must be a balance, but we can find a lot of fun things to do with our friends without acting dumb. You'll hear in today's time, let him do whatever he wants, he's just a kid. And later, when he is expected to become that mature person, he is not. Why? Precisely for the reason above. He sees bad things and he puts them into practice. He finds pleasure and excitement in doing these things and it is almost impossible to turn back from those ways. Michael Jackson beautifully said, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways and no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. The change starts with us and we have to put it into practice because no human is perfect, but hard work will shape us in the right way. God says, honor your father and your mother. The small catechism teaches us that our mother and father serve as God's representatives through whom he bestows and nurtures human life on earth. We must fear and love God, but, not, but, but by not despising our parents and all other authorities. God gives parents a unique, a unique task that serves the well-being of all society. They are here to shape our life toward the good. They are mature and understand what is good and bad for us. As teenagers, 
we might not like the way they are directing us because we have a rebel spirit in us. But I believe that if we go over our pride and rebellion, it will be for our well-being. Our parents dream that we will be better than they are and they will do everything to help us accomplish this. Let's not let the society today fool us with honey because we might get a microwave sandwich now that will keep our hunger away for one hour, but aim for the excellent feast that God prepares for us and will keep away the hunger for eternity. I think that another huge problem in today's society are the parents who do not exercise their authority above the children. As parents, you are expected to teach and provide for the children. You must be an example the children will follow. Sadly, I heard parents saying that, children, that the children are free to do whatever they want and later saw them going in wrong directions, eventually even landing in jail. But that's what the kids are proud of today. How expensive the gift from my parents was, the car they bought me and how expensive it was, uh, how much liberty they give me and how rude I talk to them. Why are we proud of the temporal and bad things? How, what has society become? Adults sadly feed that thinking and as long as the parents will not shape children's behavior and thought, then the future gener generations will continue to degenerate. The only things we can do are to address this topic public, public, publicly. Children who are not led toward the good to find their examples in others who can show them ethical ways and pray God for a change in the mind of all these humans. In fact, we need to pray for our neighbor and our neighbor is every human being and for we all come from God. Parents, please use your authority above us and don't leave us go to go on the wrong path that this society attracts us. You might receive rejection from us, but later when we will be the mature adults that you shaped and prepare, we will thank you. I'm not talking to you as being a perfect, a perfect person myself because I am not. And this is why I chose this topic. I was never in danger or being in a big trouble, but I have seen with my own eyes these things and they are not, they are not a pleasant thing to see. I am, I'm asking you because, uh, because together we can create a safer environment and maybe change something. May God bless us and direct every human being on his ways because only with his help we shall prevail the continuous attacks from the devil sent through the society. If your actions inspires others to dream, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Let us be these people that inspire others because we need to be examples in this sick society. Let's give a big welcome to Olivia. My name is Mary Treasures of Music. I always love music. Whoso has the skill in this art is of good temperament, fitted for all things. So are the words of Martin Luther, which still hold true today. Schools in the United States offer a vast sea of studies for their students to pursue. These studies are meant to exercise the mind. Besides having studies that further one's education, they also push their extra physical curricular of basketball, football, and baseball, and the like. The numerous courses, including history, mathematics, languages, and sciences, are other, and other extra sport curricular are the focus of the school's curriculum. In offering all of these treasures to their students, one treasure is still lacking. 
The fine arts are often left out of the equation of school curriculum. Of these fine arts, music is one that is taken most for granted. Some of the treasures of music are still buried further than some care today. But by exploring further and putting a little extra light work, we can find the sparkling treasures of music. These treasures can be found in training the mind, imagination, and character. It also can be found in proclaiming the word of God. Music is said to be the faculty of the fine arts. The pinnacle of the studies of painting, sculpting, architecture, theater, and dance is music. Music aids the minds in its endeavors to learn. By giving each student the riches of music, one is also giving to get the math, history, and language. Music is taught through time and rhythm. History is taught by the era and period that the music was set in, and language is taught through the sounds from which we learn. All of these contribute to a mental workout. Music is a gold rush for the studies of the mind, and by training the brain and the art of music, one is bedrooling the crown of knowledge. Music picks at the imagination in order to harness it. When listening to music, one's imagination is set to flight. As one listens to music, it starts to paint a picture for each individual, transporting them into a new place where they can be set free of the pains of this world. The imagination is encouraged to explore new things. This curiosity produces a new and different treasure wherein the imagination is engaged, not only for the listener, but also for the musician. For the musician, it takes great effort to portray the images of the music to the listener. Time is taken out for the musician to really treasure the music so that they, like their audience, can savor the richness of the images which music has the power to give. Each and every student should be given this opportunity to not only experience the imagination through the music, but to also provide these images for the listeners. Character is discovered when considering music as well. Many hours of dedication are put into playing an instrument. A musician often goes through hours of tweaking, critiquing, and examining every note, phrase, and movement to be sure that nothing is left uncovered or unexposed. They work hard to make the music that produces a thing of beauty for which many should want to hear for themselves. The character is gained through time, effort, and dedication put into this work. All men should develop the same character when pursuing any occupation. Music lends itself to the time-consuming task of digging for a rare gem. In the good words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, music will help dissolve your perplexities and purify your character and sensibilities, and in time of care and sorrow, will keep a fountain of joy alive in you. Music builds and purifies your character. This is a needful trait for any good student. Each one of these, mind, imagination, and character, ought to be developed for any man to succeed. Plato says, music is a moral law. It gives soul to the universe, wings to the mind, and flight to the imagination, and life to everything. Plato makes the point here that music is the right action. It is the law that is right and good for any man to pursue. It fulfills the soul, helps the mind to soar, supports the imagination in seeing, and gives to everything beauty and breath. Without music, our world would not be painted with striking color of melody and harmony. Music should be numbered with the rest of these rare treasures. Besides all this, we find an even deeper meaning in the gift of music from God. God gave to man the gift of music to serve the temporal mind and body, but he also gave to man the gift of music to praise him. Luther once said, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. The gift of language combined with the gift of song was given to man that he should praise, that he should proclaim the word of God through music. One of the greatest purposes of music is to praise the Lord. This is why it is regarded so high in the words of Luther. When the word is combined with music, it becomes a holy and pleasing sight. Many people have participated in this practice throughout the ages. As we can see in the Psalms, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. All the Israelites in the Old Testament, after crossing the Red Sea on dry ground, sang with rejoicing. 
The very sound of music is a delight to the Lord. He hears it, and the sound pleases him. Everyone ought to learn the art of music in order to rend this pleasing gift and treasure unto God. We must teach music in schools. A schoolmaster ought to have skill in music, or I would not regard him. From these wise words of Luther, not only should we teach music in our schools, but it is imperative to the benefit of our students that music is taught. Music must be held in the highest regard by any man. It should be considered a treasure to all manner of men, for it is a beautiful gift. I am grateful to my music teachers that have shown me beauty and truth through this music. Strengthening the mind, exercising the imagination, and building good character are all marvelous outputs of music. But more than these is the gift of praising God that comes when playing music. Because music aids both body and soul, we should count this sparkling jewel with all the rest of our treasures that we hold so dear. Through the course of time, through the summation of history, and through the testimony of civilization, there has been one institution more important to a free society than any other. In today's age of supposed progress and amelioration, this institution has regressed and deteriorated, causing destitution of morality among our common people and agitation and dissension against among our leaders. This institution, though it has withstood the gnawing teeth of time, though it has suffered many attacks throughout history, is now in our own country ailing and beleaguered beyond all its erstwhile tribulations. It is the divine institution of the family which is under siege. Unhappily, the topics under this issue are far too numerous for me to address fully in the allotted time. Therefore, for perspicuity's sake, I shall be brief. The institution of the family is, and always has been, the most basic unit in the edifice of a free and prosperous culture. The stones which each civilization builds its monolith. To examine this point, let us inspect the three cultures which have affected the North American continent, the land which most of us call home. The Native Americans indeed had no aspirations to greatness as a nation, but were rather concerned with living their lives day to day, hunting, fishing, gathering, making war, and moving, so they could begin the aforementioned activities anew. The American Indians had for themselves a savage culture where no man owned property, there was no common currency, very little trading, and just as little farming. But theirs was a culture of family, governed by a patriarch chief who decided their hunting, fishing, gathering, war-making, and moving for the best interest of the tribe, just as a father would decide what is best for his family. This is the purest example as family, as the base unit of society. For the family was so prevalent in God's natural order that their culture revolved around it. The Vikings, or Norsemen, possessed a barbarian culture, but their system of commerce and justice was rooted on the family. They touched North America, looking for land with promises of prosperity. Their families worked and produced, bought and traded, and their goods supported one another. To the Viking, all thing, where once a year, the head of the family would go to speak his peace on matters of law and justice. But the barbarian monolith crumbled. The Vikings would not stay long in America. The savage's structure crumbled, giving way to the civilized. But the civilized man brought with him not only stones, but mortar and a foundation. North America saw its first taste of the civilized culture in 1607 with the founding of Jamestown. This marked the beginning of the European colonies, made mostly by families with strong backs and little or no money, in search of freedom and opportunity. It was stones of this character which built the monolith for America, mortared together by Christian values and founded on a spirit of faith. 
The settlers did not trust themselves for safety and success, but placed themselves in the hands of God's providence. And upon this cornerstone, our monolith was constructed grandly and beautifully, receiving additions and raised to greatness through adversity over the next 200 years until Friedrich Wilhelm Neitzet, a German nihilist, a name familiar to some, said in 1882, God is dead and we have killed him. A blatantly blasphemous quote, forgive me, but nonetheless true in a political sense, especially now. 11 years ago, our newly elected president said on his first tour overseas, and I paraphrase, we do not consider ourselves a Christian nation, but a nation bound by ideals and a set of values. What nonsensical expectation is this? If we are bound by a set of values and they are not the ones given to us by God, then they must be the values of men. And if they be the values of men, therefore they be contrary to God. As Paul tells us in Galatians 5:17, the flesh lasteth against the spirit. This, my friends, was a chipping spike driven deep into the foundation of our monolith. The vibrations from this shock caused the sand, our values, which held our families together to fall from the rocks and leave them loose. But how did our mortar turn to sand? By generations of silent siege. After Neitzig claimed that God died, the preceding century was the bloodiest in the history of man. An estimated minimum of 128 million people were killed in the wars in the 20th century. The 20th century also gave birth to a new line of thought, supposedly progressive, supposedly liberating, but completely destructive. Since the 1960s, men and women have been more and more encouraged to give in to the lusts of the flesh, submerging themselves in pleasure and physical comforts. This liberation has only enslaved men to their desires, and this progress has inflated the problem and diminished man. In our day, the family, one of the most beloved institutions to us all is under the greatest attack it has ever seen. Men and women break their families on a whim with legal papers and women are celebrated for being promiscuous and men inoculate themselves to love with putrid repulsive media, which I will not name here. The stones of our monolith are crumbling. The mortar has dissolved and our foundation is now sinking sand. But as the powdered mortar blows away, as the stones fall and sink, a new edifice is revealed underneath, smaller yet remaining. Built soundly upon the cornerstone of faith, our people have awakened. A division has formed. With current events, the contrast between truth and falsehood has been magnified. Those who seek a secure foundation are rallying to tradition and returning to the ideals of their fathers. The lockdowns have brought families together again and brought communities together again. Can we make our monolith great again? Only with the help of God. For through all, God promises to preserve his church and give wisdom to those who seek it. Even under tyranny, even when cities fall and nations rise, when Atlas shrugs. Our In today's culture, parents have been heavily cautioned to not allow their children to play outside unsupervised. Simply playing outside in the yard with no adult supervision has been looked down upon other adults. The parents who take an obsessive interest in their child's safety is the definition of a helicopter parent. 20 years ago, children could ride their bikes all through town and people would have had no issue with it. There are several good reasons for children to play outside without being supervised. It has become evident that today's parents are very apprehensive about their children being hurt or even stolen. Some people have even called the police on parents who are allowing their children to play outside unsupervised. We can't solve all the problems of the West, but it is important for us to change our focus and concerns on children being allowed to play outside unsupervised. There are several benefits for children playing outside. Research has shown when children play in natural settings, 
they are far more likely to invent games than in scheduled settings. Richard Boob wrote in his book, Vitamin N, a key factor in becoming self-directed and inventive as children and late in life is in playing in more natural spaces. Children can learn to be more self-sufficient while playing in nature. Children need to learn to be self-sufficient because one day they will be out of the house and won't have their parents' supervision 24-7. Parents need to allow their children to get hurt outside. Getting straight knees helps children learn from their mistakes. For instance, when I was a child, I was running down the street in flip-flops. I slipped and fell flat on my face. I completely scraped up my knee. This taught me a valuable lesson, not only to not run in flip-flops, but to listen to my parents because they know what is in my best interest. Playing outside builds a physically healthier child. An article by Stanford Health wrote, nowhere is better than the outdoors for running, jumping, throwing balls, catching, pulling things, lifting and carrying objects. Children playing outside get aerobic exercise and gain skills, such as pushing and pulling outdoor play equipment. Children become stronger when they play outside. While playing outside in the sun, children build vitamin D in the body, which helps keep stronger bones and have a decreased likelihood of chronic disease. Playing outside contributes to the development of a child. The same article by Stanford Health says, unstructured outdoor play helps kids learn to take turns, share, and develop other positive behavioral skills. They are more likely to be inventive, explore, and learn about the world around them and use their own abilities. Inventing games with siblings and friends help improve communication, cooperation, and organization skills. It can also help reduce stress levels and help with sensory skills. It also states an optometry and vision center study showed children who played outside regularly have better distance vision than children who are always indoors. Playing outside enhances children's vision. It can increase the attention span of children. It goes on to say children who play outdoors regularly are more curious, self-directed, and likely to stay with a test longer. Playing outside allows children to learn more, entertain themselves, and stay focused on the task given. It can also improve our immunity. It finally says, outdoor light simulates the pineal gland. This part of the brain is vital to keeping our immune system strong and making us feel happier. Illinois has made a law that says children up to 14 years old are not allowed to be unattended. From the article, IllinoisPolicy.org says, Currently, Illinois law claims neglect when any minor under the age 14 years whose parent or other person responsible for the minor's welfare leaves the minor without regard to the mental or physical health, safety, or welfare of that minor. The Illinois law is saying that a parent is neglecting their child's safety if they are left alone for an unreasonable time. Parents have safety concerns about not allowing their children to play outside. Parents are worried about strangers, bullies, and their child being infected. Parents today go everywhere with their children. An article called Active for Life says, many parents try to manage the safety of their children through different forms of surveillance. Some parents set limits on where their kids can go when they have to be home, or they drive them to their destinations, or they only permit them to play if they are with friends, or they insist that they carry cell phones. All these concerns prevent children from having independent play. It also can be an issue of fewer children living in a small proximity to other children, which means there's a smaller opportunity to generate safety. All of these concerns of parents need setting limits and having surveillance of their child is obsessive. These are the risks of helicopter parenting. Not letting your child make mistakes is not good for them. With parent supervision, the child is less likely to get hurt because a parent can intervene and not allow something to happen. An article at momsyouthink.com says, a parental supervisor can prevent a game from becoming dangerous or getting out of hand. It can put you in the scene of a potential accident to either stop it from occurring or mitigate the damage. This author, though, does not take into account that moms cannot have their children at their side all day long. It is nearly impossible with the responsibilities moms have. There is not enough time in the day for moms to get their work done. 
Mother needs, mothers need to cook, clean, and do laundry. These are wonderful times to allow children to go out and explore. How are children supposed to learn independence if they are sitting to their mother's side all day long? It is impossible for a mother to avoid every little scrape her child can get while playing outside. Accidents happen every day. Parents need to accept the fact that their children are going to get hurt, and it's okay. Scrapes can and do heal. If a mother needs to run to the store to get some eggs, why couldn't a mother leave her older, responsible, and trained children to stay at home alone while she makes a quick run to the grocery store? Why does she have to wait until her child is 14 years old? Shouldn't a parent know when her child is responsible enough to stay home alone for a period of time? When I was a child, I was deprived of being able to play outside whenever I liked. Without my mother's supervision, I was only allowed to play in the driveway. In the afternoon, my mother would teach piano lessons. My sisters and I would want to play in our backyard playset and ride our bikes. We were only allowed to ride in the cul-de-sac of our street. Many other mothers would voice their opinions to my mother about how she was being a bad mother letting us play outside alone. Today's coronavirus pandemic has bred out the worst in our society. We are living in a lockdown. Our current American children have always been living in a lockdown because parents don't have enough confidence to not let their eyes be off their children for more than five minutes. This is simply outrageous. What will happen to these overly supervised children when it is time for them to leave their overly safe homes for college, or as they have to to lead independent adult lives. Today, society has made it clear how parents should be at their child's side 24-7. Because of all the tremendous benefits children receive from unsupervised outside play, we should stop helicopter parenting by not depriving our American children of all these imperative benefits. Children need to learn independence, physical health, and how to not get hurt on their own. Our generation is in the midst of a crisis. It is a crisis of identity that results from a loss of meaning. We don't know the purpose of life, what's real or who we are, and society doesn't have the answers. Society itself faces an absence of enduring meaning because it has cut itself off from the only source, the steadfast rock of God. The meaninglessness we now face is nothing new. It was long in the making. Let me take you back to a cold night in 1619, when history reports that French philosopher René Descartes crawled into an oven. In the warmth and solitude, he deduced the certain foundation of all knowledge, himself. Western civilization followed him in and has never found its way out. All light and warmth of lasting meaning have long since vanished, but still we sit in the darkness of our own reason. We are blind to the bright light of transcendent truth and real meaning that shines just outside. We are content to float adrift on the bleak sea of meaninglessness, severed from the fastness of Christian culture that anchored us to reality and our identity. When you leave humanity to fend for itself, darkness and despair prevail. Following in the footsteps of Descartes, Kant, Nietzsche, and Darwin, Western society has been trying to build its own reality and discover its own meaning for centuries, and yet never looking beyond itself. As our world slowly secularized, flattering itself in the self-sufficiency of human reason, we seemed blind to our decline into darkness. We cut ourselves off from the lifeline of our past, our values, and our faith, the very things that once grounded us, setting society adrift in the turbulent sea of the universe. Then postmodernism came along and critiqued modernism, but without offering a different solution. It brought us no closer to enduring meaning or lasting hope. Postmodernity merely alerted us to the fact that we are adrift, and adrift in merciless seas. Philosophy left this generation stranded and in the dark, abandoned to fend for ourselves and discover some kind of meaning in the only certain thing we have left, our feelings. 
severed from the anchor of transcendent, meaningful reality, we must construct our own subjective reality from the way we feel. When there's no right, no wrong, and no reason, if you feel like a boy, you are one. If you don't want that baby, abort it. Whatever makes you happy, because you're the captain of your own drifting raft. And where has this gotten us? In 1960, too few teen deaths occurred to produce an official government statistic. Today, coupled with drug overdosing, suicide is the leading cause of death among young adults. When faced with the bleak and hopeless world that we have left ourselves, tens of thousands of our generation cannot bear to live. The fleeting, isolated realities that we create cannot satisfy our souls. Still, society will not admit its mistake. It will not back down from the ultimate authority it claims, even when surrounded with the, dark, the stark realities of human failure. It will not return to the values and objective transcendent truths that once anchored us to enduring stable meaning and defined our identity. It will not leave the darkness of Descartes' oven even though we are dying from lack of light. Society has tried by many means to fill the hole God leaves in all our souls. It provides a long list of confected religions from which we can shape and construct our identity. Financial prosperity, political affiliation, philanthropy, fitness, social media, social justice, sexuality, relationships, pop culture, brands, careers, sports teams. All these society hails as sources of personal meaning and fulfillment. The problem is it hasn't worked and it never will. The contrived transient solutions of society lack the capacity for stable meaning. The constantly changing societal values and individual realities just blow us to and fro across a sea of meaninglessness. Cut adrift, secular society will never give us real enduring fulfillment. We were created to long for something deeper. So no shallow human endeavor can ever assuage that longing. Only God can. This is the fatal flaw that we in our pride have ignored. We are created in the image of God and only in him can we find enduring meaning. Humanity remains adrift, unable to govern itself, find its own meaning or construct its own reality. It didn't start with Descartes. Humanity has been in the dark ever since Adam and Eve first tried to place themselves above God. And we've been trying the same thing ever since. But it hasn't worked. We need to recognize our inability to achieve meaning and anchor ourselves to the one who can. We need Christianity, not as a philosophy, not as yet another possible religion, not as a pawn for humanitarian ethics. We need to grasp again the lines of Christian values, culture, and discipline that moored our society to steadfast, permanent meaning found in the word of God. As the baptized, our identity is anchored in Christ. And in Christ, we have all enduring meaning and value. We are saved, and not by our own fleeting works or ideas. We can cling to the solid truth of our salvation by grace alone. Our society is not without hope. Our generation does not face total despair. Already, some have opened their eyes to the state of our society and pushed for a return to the tradition upon which Western civilization was built. We are among these change makers. Many are exhausted from trying to stay afloat on the ever rising tides of secular ideology. They long for substantive solid meaning and have looked to our past to find it. Many glimpsed a sliver of light and threw open the door to Christian culture tied to transcendent truth. The United States now hosts two and a half million homeschoolers. Great books programs are springing up throughout the country. Enrollment in classical and parochial schools 
has increased by 79% since 2014. Confessional churches remain strong. We cannot let this flame die out. We, as Christians, stand steady in the vessels of our communities and churches amidst the fleeting waves and winds of the world, moored to our Christian tradition and bolstered by enduring transcendent reality. We are grounded in the ultimate source of steadfast meaning and identity. The crisis of our society should not cause us despair, but empower us. Through God, we can bring meaning back to a meaningless generation. Indeed, we must. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.